Okay, uh, good afternoon, every, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Vin. I'm one of the pastors here at church. Um, I have the honor and privilege of continuing our series, The Elephant in the Room. Actually, I have the curse of having to deal with evil and suffering, which is a very difficult uh, topic in this uh, moment in time. But um, if you want to open up to Psalm, open up your Bibles as we continue in worship in Psalm chapter 73. I'm going to read from verses 12 to 17. So Psalm 73, if you would please uh, stand as we uh, worship God in the reading of his word. So that's Psalm 73, verses 12 to 17. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you uh, today dealing with a very difficult uh, topic. And so Jesus, we entrust uh, unto you, Lord God, that through your word that you reveal to us some answers. But in moments like an earthquake, that takes 22,000 people, there are times when there seems like there are no answers at all. And yet we are called to trust you. So Jesus, for those of us who do not know you yet, would you soften hearts? Would you have their ears open and attentive to what you would have to say to them, Lord God? And for many of us in the room who, who have trusted you, would you help us trust you even more? And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. Um, when my children, so I have two young daughters, those who don't know me, I have two young daughters. Uh, when they were newborn babies, uh, we were encouraged by our doctor to have our children take their immunization shots, Okay. Uh, and so like measles, tuberculosis, what are, all those things. For those who have been parents, you know, like many years ago to, to myself who are sort of new, newer parents and to, for, for those who are parents to come, this idea of immunization can be a very traumatizing event. It's difficult for parents because you know why? Because you and I know it's difficult because we know we are going to cause pain and suffering to our children. I can visit, vividly remember the time when the, the nurse, when we're in the room, the nurse is telling us, informing us of how to hold the child safely as they administer the immunization shot. I mean... They call it an immunization shot, shot. I call it a stabbing. The first shot goes into the arm, for those who have experienced this, the first shot goes in, into the arm of the newborn baby. And for a split second, there's nothing. And then a second after, the baby just goes wild and crazy and cries. 
And just as that happens, in the middle, in the height of the screaming, you know what happens? The nurse goes for a stabbing again. The only thing as a parent that you can do in that moment is what? The only thing you can do in that moment is hold the child and tell the child, I love you. It'll be okay. But you know what reality happens when it kicks in? The child then looks at you and says, you don't love me. This is evil. And they continue to scream. You know, my kids shouldn't blame me. You know what we should do? My kids and I, we should join forces and blame the nurses. <laughs> nurses, we love you. But sometimes it seems like you've got stone-cold hearts when you stab children. But how? How do you give these kids their shots and help them to not flinch? Look, the ultimate truth is this. On a serious note, first of all, thank you to our nurses. Thank you for all you do, honestly. But what my child is experiencing at that moment seems like evil and suffering, does it not? Especially evil. And even though my child does not understand what is actually going on in that moment, you and I know that what, is, what they're going through is actually for their good. See, wrestling with the topic of evil and suffering, look, there are only three questions I have, the three statements I really want to make and wrestle through uh, this afternoon. And they are this. First, is there evil and suffering? Second, why is there evil and suffering? And then third, it only makes sense with Jesus. Okay? So is there evil and suffering? Why is there evil and suffering? And it only makes sense with Jesus. So let's go to our first question. Is there evil and suffering? Look, I know for many of us, this may be a very obvious question. But for many others, this is actually, believe it or not, is still in doubt. It is still in doubt for many that there is the existence of evil and suffering. Let me give you a few examples. Buddhism still has a difficult time in explaining evil and suffering and its ultimate existence and its reality. In Buddhism, it actually tries to push the focus on what? On the inner self. So worry about the inner self. Don't worry about what's happening externally. Okay? Whatever's happening externally, don't worry about it. This on the inside is what you need to worry about. Christian science, if you've never heard of it, founded in the 19th century by false prophet Mary Baker Eddy, they do not, in their doctrinal statement, do not even acknowledge evil, that it's a real thing. New Age philosophy, which really took a height at the end of the 20th century and then has now picked up again in the early 20th, 21st century, New Age philosophy denies, actually denies the reality of evil and suffering. And then you've got other religions that will purely put the blame on the individual, that somehow the individual, like you and I, we are responsible for all the evil and suffering in our lives. Which means, if this is the case, which means that you and I deserve everything that we have received, and that means we are responsible for alleviating all the evil and suffering on us and in us. 
Christianity deals with the issue of evil and suffering head on. Doesn't shy away from it, is not scared of it, deals with it openly. Even though we're looking at a very short passage in Psalm 73, we can see the psalmist write out the injustices of his world, of what he saw in his day. And it's the same cry for us today. Even though we didn't read the entire chapter, if you look at verse 3, it notes that there are people in his day and age that believe that they were better than others. It's the same today. He continues in verse 3 with the question of, hey, God, why do the rich get richer and the poor continue on their path of poverty? We still ask that question. Verse 6 mentions that there are men who are full of pride. But out of that pride, these men will bring violence, oppression, and lies into the created order. Though the psalmist, he illustrates a very personal viewpoint and something that many of us share today. The Bible from, from the very beginning, from start to finish, unveils evil and suffering from the very start. And then also, then, all throughout the Bible, it actually continues to show you how evil and suffering manifests, how it gets bigger and infiltrates all of creation. And then the Bible then concludes with how evil will be completely and utterly destroyed. So the Bible doesn't hide from this. Let's take a look at the evil and suffering from the 21st century, like today. What does it look like for us today? Because there will be moments we would all agree upon, but there will be moments that, will, that would be still considered debatable. Let me get to my first one. Crocs and socks. This is evil. If you wear socks with Crocs, it's evil. You are causing suffering for those who have to look upon it. But on a more serious note, like I said, this, some of these, surprisingly, will still be debatable. Hitler and the killing of six million Jews, Stalin and the killing of 20 million Jews, Columbine school shooting, the, the multiple tsunamis who have happened on our world, the World Trade Center, the 2008 financial crisis, if you haven't heard of this new one, like Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, what she did was fake blood, uh, blood samples and let people deal with the fake blood results. Nexium, if you haven't heard of that one, it was a sex cult. They even had a branch here in Vancouver, if you didn't know, when they would uh, uh, get young women in for self-help stuff and all of a sudden it's a sex cult and they were actually physically branded with the Messiah's name by their crotch. And now we have the earthquake, where the death toll has surpassed 22,000. And now, and then we have, if, not, if that wasn't the big stuff, what about the everyday evil and sufferings that occur, even now, outside these wars? Some believe that this is evidence of the existence of evil and suffering. But you know that atheists would disagree. Richard Dawkins the famous British evolutionary biologist, former professor of Oxford University and atheist himself, in his book, The River Out of Eden, suggests, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect 
If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. For atheists like Richard Dawkins, the existence of evil and suffering is proof that a good and loving God does not exist. Because what he's saying is, if a, if good, and a, if a good and loving God did exist, then evil and suffering would not exist. They can't coexist. Great point. Look, Christians, we believe in certain sort of tenets. The idea is best, I think, summed up by the Christian philosopher Alvin uh, Platinga, who says this, Christians should universally believe in at least five things. They are, God exists, God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, and God is wholly good, and then fifth, that evil exists. Those are the five tenets that most Christians should believe in. But 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume has a very profound statement, I think, that sums it up even, that sums it up best. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able to but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? The argument that with the existence of evil and suffering proves that there is no God is actually a very good and challenging argument. But the statement assumes things. The statement assumes that there is evil and suffering and that they do exist in our reality. See, one of the problems for atheists is that their understanding of life does not satisfactorily explain away evil and suffering. They just say, it is what it is. Deal with it. But in a, in a recent national poll, the question was asked, if you could ask God one question and he had to give you an answer, what would that question be? And the poll unanimously says and reveals to us, why is there pain and suffering in the world? That's what people want to know. The majority know, not just know, but we also feel that evil and suffering exist. The majority would all agree that the abuse of children is wrong, that killing of innocent people is wrong, and that the cancer, like physical, medical cancer that infiltrates our culture and society, seems really unfair. It's impossible to explain away the way we think and feel about pain and suffering. When I was a youth pastor many years ago now, I can still remember being part of a, a funeral of my church. A young man in my youth group had taken his own life. It came as a shock to everyone, including myself. But he left a letter to explain why he did what he did. I remember the day of the funeral like it was yesterday. I remember it being a white, open casket. And there was a veil they put over his face, so you could just see his face. 
near the conclusion of the funeral, the mother walked up to say her final goodbyes. When she gets up to the casket, she starts crying. Then she's really broken. Now she's wailing and screaming. Her husband has to come up and hold her up because she's about to fall to the ground of just, pure, just being purely distraught and broken. And as the husband is holding the wife's limp body, he turns to the casket and he screams to the son, Why, son? Why would you do this to your mother? Why would you do this to us? There are many of you in this room who have experienced and tasted and seen pure and suffering in your own life. You've seen evil beyond what I've seen and suffering beyond what I have seen. And as a church, we cry with you. We mourn with you. And for those of you who are struggling with life, would you talk to someone? We want you to know that life is still worth living and that the sun comes up tomorrow. Look, if you're anything like the psalmist, you're not trying to explain to yourself whether even suffering exists or do not exist. That's already proven to you. It's proven to most, the majority. What we're trying to do is find the reasons why. Which leads me to my second point. Why is there evil and suffering? So church, let me ask you a question. Have you ever prepared a meal for children? Actually, let me rephrase that. Have you ever prepared a meal for my children? No? Let me tell you. I know that when you look at my children, they look like angels to you. No, you're wrong. My children are evil geniuses. But evil mostly. I will literally put my blood, sweat and tears in the food. That's where the flavor comes from. But without fail, every time we, put the, we plate the food, we put it on the table, the first thing they ask every single time is, do we have to eat this? Is there anything else? What's that green stuff? Look, the truth is I love my children. I actually love it that they ask the question why. And it's not just about food. When they're at that age, at a very young age, they're always going to ask those big questions. They're going to ask questions about life and why things the way that they are. So as the psalmist is asking questions of why, why does he see and experience and witness and feel the things that he does in his world, this should actually encourage us. Because the Bible doesn't shy away from asking questions and asking the questions why. The Bible encourages us to do the same thing because God is not afraid of the questions we have of him and of why the world is the way it is. I think God encourages it. So ask. But you see, over many centuries, Christians have tried really hard to try and give a defense of why God would give 
allow evil and suffering in the world. Some Christians have conceded, key word, conceded to the idea that God is not all-powerful. Some believe that God is so upset with the world and with the way things are going and where humanity is heading that he wants to. He's so desperate to jump in, but he's unable because there's too many moving pieces in order to make this work. Christians who believe this find, they actually find comfort from this reasoning. But the Bible says something completely different. The God of the Bible is not weak or impotent or unable to stop evil. In Jeremiah 32 to 26 to 27, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The belief that God is not all-powerful sort of solves the issue of evil. But then, here's the problem, but then you are left with a different version of the historical and biblical God. Another reason would be that all humanity, another reason that Christians give is that all humanity has what we call free will. This means that some Christians believe that God is omnipotent, that's all-powerful, but by his own volition, limits his power to not interfere with humanity's free will. But with this type of freedom given to humanity, there are consequences. Part of the consequences is that humanity can reject and commit evil acts. This means that evil and suffering is not God's fault at all. This falls squarely on humanity, on you and I. Look, the reasoning behind free will is actually good, but there are major obstacles in its way. The Bible makes it clear that God does control the free actions of men and women. The Bible tells us God turns hearts. In Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Bible goes on to say that God hardens hearts. Romans 9.18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I was once at a high school graduation. At this high school graduation ceremony, they invited a guest speaker. This guest speaker at this time was famous for being in a horrific car accident. But in the car, he had his friends with him. He had four other passengers, and he was the only one to survive this tragic, tragic accident. There was over a 1,000 people in this room listening to him speak at a graduation, a high school graduation service. He tells a story of him going out and trying to find the reasons why he had survived and the meaning of it all. He went to tell on that he went out to tell us that he went to the doctors and he asked the doctors, "Hey, doctors, why did I survive?" The doctors said, "We have no idea, but you're lucky. It's just pure luck that you're here." For some reason, that didn't satisfy him. So he went to his family and friends, and his family and friends, "Hey, why did I survive this accident? What's the meaning of it all?" And they, the friends, is like, "We have no idea, but we're thankful that you survived, that you're here with us." 
The speaker finally mentions that he turned to religious leaders to hopefully get an answer. And the religious leaders tell him that maybe there is a good and godly reason for the accident and his survival. At this point, the tone of his speech, it turned. And he became visibly frustrated. Good? What good? My friends didn't survive. There is no good. The speaker goes on to tell the students that there is no good. But you have to just go out there and just be good and do good. That's it. That's the whole meaning for him. And right at that moment, I thought to myself, oh, this dude is compelling. I like him. But he's mistaken. Because he was right in the middle of doing something really good for these young people. And he just missed it. But he had everyone in the palm of his hand. He had the power to influence an entire generation to not just do good and not just be good, but really to wrestle through the meaning of it all. But naturally, this should still, this story should still lead us to a very particular question, which is how still, how could there be a good reason, Vin, for God to allow evil and suffering, including for this man? There's a great question. But since we personally see no good reason does not mean a good reason does not exist. Let me put it to you this way. I don't know how many of you go hiking, but this is what I would say. Hiking is horrible. I remember my first hike in Canada when I first moved over. My first hike in Canada was a seven-hour hike. It was long, it was steep. I thought it was never going to end. And have you noticed when you hike, interesting things happen. As you hike up the hill, mountain, some glorified hill, as people are coming down and you're going up, especially for us as Canadians, we always polite, we say hi, but you always ask the question, hey, am I close to the top? Do you know what they say every time? Oh, you're so close. (laughs) And they all lie, every single one. They give you this false hope, and you're so used to that day. I remember climbing up, I was like, oh my gosh, we're still going? And then in the I'm not kidding you, we go up this, and then we walk into a middle of a thunderstorm. And the thunderstorm goes on for about 10 minutes and we have to pause and we get back, we still, then it ends and we go up and then mosquitoes come to attack me. And have you seen me? Have you seen my frail body? I can't survive that. And we finally get to the top and you would think now, I'm going to tell you when I got to the top, ah, there was good. No, there still wasn't. As I get to the top with me and my friends, You know what they decided to do? Because it wasn't my idea to go hiking. It was their idea to go hiking. We get to the top, and they said, hey, hey, Vin, it's time for a selfie. So we take a selfie. I was like, okay, now it's time to relax. Then the leader of the group goes, no, 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 it's time to go back down. (laughs) So I did seven hours to go take a selfie. Now it's to go back down. The truth is this. There, There actually was a lot of good. The good was I made it home alive. 
It was good because now I know I will never go hiking again. But it was mostly good because of actually the friendships I've made. That journey, that the, 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 whatever you want to call it, the torture, the whatever it is, me and my friends, we still talk about it today. And so when they keep asking me, hey, let's go hiking again, I say no. Here's what I mean. If you were anything like me, then you were humanly finite. Which means you and I are limited in our thinking. We are limited in our understanding. We are limited in our concept of time. And to truly see God producing good out of evil and suffering, we, we, we're not able, humanly speaking. We cannot. So if good is a, this long, if, if it's a long, eternal process that we cannot fathom today, then my question then is, then what about today? Because doesn't today matter just as much as tomorrow? Yeah, it does, and it should. Christian apologist William Lane Craig, in his book On God, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision, comments on Christianity in the 21st century. And he says this, One reason that the problem of suffering seems so puzzling is that people naturally tend to assume that if God exists, then his purpose for human life is happiness in his life. God's role is to provide a comfortable environment for his human pets. But on the Christian view, this is false. We are not God's pets. And the goal of human life is not happiness per se, but the knowledge of God, which in the end will bring true and everlasting human fulfillment. Church, as one of your pastors, I will let you know this. It saddens me to see Christians believe that God is there for your happiness. But the Bible makes it very, very clear that following Jesus, now listen to me, the Bible makes it very clear that following Jesus is not about your happiness, it's about your holiness. God can use evil and suffering to make us more holy, to make us more like his son. And that is a good thing. But there are other reasons that the Bible wrestles through. There have been times, that's hard to talk about, but there have been times when God has used evil and suffering as a form of punishment. There's the famous biblical story of Noah who builds an ark, who builds this giant boat, and, 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 and you know, it puts all these animals into the boat, and God saves the family. And the flood comes. This, is the, this, is, this, this story for Christians, you would know. Even though all the people on the earth are unaware of God's intent, the Bible tells us that God sent the flood. God did. Because the wickedness of man was great on the earth. If you don't believe me, Genesis chapter 6. God sends it because of the wickedness of the earth. Another reason that the Bible gives is that God uses suffering to display his glory in redemption, in how he saves. This idea is summed up well in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. 
And it says this, as he, that's Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There will be times in this world where there will be evil and suffering. And from the depths of our hearts, from our broken hearts, we will cry out to God. There will come a point where we will not cry out for answers. You know what we will cry out for? We will cry out for salvation, for God to rescue us from the evil and suffering. Because ultimately, we want to be rescued from evil and suffering and not just get the answers. Why? And for those who cry out to the name of Jesus for salvation, by his grace and mercy, he saves. But you know, there's also a wonderful mystery to all the times that cannot be explained why there's evil and suffering. And the Bible acknowledges that too. Going back to the psalm of chapter 73, verse 16, the psalmist wrestles with when it says, but when I thought how to understand this, the why the world is the way it is, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It's like I'll, I'll, tire myself, I'll tire myself out just by asking over and over again. You know, there's been times in my marriage where I sit and wonder why my life, wife chooses to marry me. Because seriously, look at me. I'm five foot seven on a good day. That's a good day. And on most good days, I'm usually the angry little elf. Because I complain about everything. But in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we are told of a story that starts. It starts actually in chapter 37, the first book of the Bible, and ends in chapter 50. It's a story of Joseph. So for those of you who are non-Christians, you are so welcome here. But let me tell you, the story of Joseph in its all its horror and glory. It's, you know, it's even been told in the secular world by a Broadway musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's hit the mainstream. The biblical narrative, the biblical story in, in Genesis 37, going all the way to Genesis 50, tells us that Joseph is, is hated by his brothers. He has all these brothers, they all hate him, every single one. They hate him so much that they sell him, in the, they first think about killing him, that they said, hey, hey that's, that's, we're going too far. So let's sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery, they go home, they tell their father, hey, dad, your favorite son Joseph has been killed by wild animals, and here's the proof. They give the, the, the rainbow coat, it's all dressed in blood. By God's grace and mercy, Joseph is bought out, sold to an Egyptian officer. So Joseph now is a slave. But in Joseph, he rises through the ranks, even as a slave. He, he, has, he gains you know, favor to where he is. Then there's this weird twist in the story. As things are going really well for Joseph, the story goes that the wife 
of the Egyptian, Egyptian officer, his boss, his slave owner, the wife wants to sleep with Joseph because he's so handsome. Joseph refuses when they're alone. He refuses and runs out of the room. And as he runs, he leaves his garment behind. The wife of the Egyptian officer is so offended that she was rejected in this story that she takes the garment and shows everyone that Joseph tried to rape her. Her husband, the Egyptian officer, the slave owner of Joseph, is so angry and throws Joseph into prison. As the story continues, while he's in prison, commentators debate of how long he's in there, but about, he's in prison for about 10 years. 10 years for a crime he did not commit. He's granted favor. Everyone in prison likes him. And he's given, we find out he's given the gift of interpreting dreams now. While in prison, Egypt's pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the kingdom, he has a dream and no one can explain it to him. All his magicians, all the, all the whole known world, no one could interpret his dream. But word gets out to Pharaoh, hey Pharaoh, there's a guy, there's a guy in prison that he can interpret dreams. After interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, we are told that now, now that, that Pharaoh has in, his dream interpreted by Joseph, Pharaoh makes Joseph now second in command of all of Egypt. But at the same time, as this is happening, Joseph's father, who's still alive, and the siblings who are still alive, are stuck in a famine. If they don't do something soon, they're all going to die. At the end of the chapter, chapter, when the family meets and they are reconciled, the book of Genesis reveals something to us. In, verse, in chapter 50, verses 19 to 20, Joseph tells his family, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Despite all that had happened to Joseph, he trusted God's providential plan from start to finish. C.S. Lewis, the former Oxford professor, wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, a wonderful book. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lastly, all this evil and suffering, it only makes sense with Jesus. Without God in the picture, evil and suffering seems pointless and completely random. But with God, with all things slowly come together in his time. But the God of the Bible doesn't stand there in the distance looking at us suffer. He doesn't sit there and look at us suffer alone. The truth is the God of the Bible actually joins us in the suffering. He joins us in the evil and suffering, but all without sin. 
Remember the story I shared in the beginning of taking my children to get their immunization shots? As all parents know, we would love to take that pain away from them, right? We would love to take those shots for them. We would love to take away all the pain, all the evil, all the suffering that our children want to go through, have to go through. That's what we want. But it's not the reality. There's a better and deeper connection with our children. Because the truth is, as Laura and I have gone through our own immunization shots or flu shots or whatever it may be, Laura and I actually know what it feels like to get a needle in one's arm. This is why when my kids get their shots, we hold them tight, do we not? That our hearts still break, but we hold them extra close and extra tight because we know what it's like. In all of history, out of all religions, all cults, throughout all of time, there has never been not a single creator who has entered into their creation and suffered evil. Not one. But the God of Christianity is an incarnational God, a God who enters into our pain through his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus not only feels the physical pain of the nails in his hands and feet, it's more than that, but he becomes a substitute for our sins. Jesus feels the full force of God's wrath towards evil and suffering. All of it. So what does this tell us about God then? On this violent death on the cross, what does it tell us? It tells us that God not only sympathizes with our sufferings, but he has experienced it himself. Author Dorothy Sayers in her book, The Great Drama Ever Stage, sums it up best. For whatever reason God chose to make man, as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. Or as pastor and as theologian John Stott explains on this thought, as he expands on this thought in his book, Why I Am a Christian, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher, ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered as us, dying in our place in order that we might be forgiven. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. 
Church, knowing that the Bible reveals evil and suffering, deals with evil and suffering, and tells the story of Jesus' experience evil and suffering through his life, death, and resurrection. This should actually, because he knows what it's like, it should cause us to trust him more. So my last question is, will you trust him more? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We come before a God who felt the full force of evil and suffering, who was tormented, who was tortured, who was brutalized, who was punished, who was sacrificed. Well, your body was broken, your blood was shed. Lord Jesus, we thank you for doing that for us. And for those of us in this room who who have not fully understood that, Lord God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you draw them to your side in this moment? Would you let them know that because as we suffer, as we deal with evil and suffering, knowing that you've gone it before, done it before us, Lord God, that you actually hold us close and tight. And you cry and you mourn and you look at the world. And Jesus, for many of us in this room, Christian and non-Christian alike, we need, you, we need your comforting power and presence in our life. We do. It's hard. Life's hard. So would you help us, Lord God, in your time? Would you help us to persevere? Would you help us to be patient? Would you help us to talk to people? Would you help us to cry out to you, Lord God, knowing that you have the answers? And even when you don't give it to us in this moment, would you help us to trust you in the midst of even silence? And so, Jesus, we lift up once again to you, Turkey and Syria, but the evil and suffering to come in our nation and the nations all across the world, oh God, because we know this is not the end. There'll be more to come. So, Jesus, Help us to come to a place where we don't need the answers, but we need the saving. Save us. Save us from this evil and suffering by the power of your Son. And so, Jesus, we thank you. In your great name we pray. Amen. There will be questions to reflect upon on the screen.